want to certainly uh, thank those who have been helping lead us in our music today. We appreciate their ministry, as we all do each week, those who offer their gifts. Uh, we appreciate very much. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, page 1145 in your Pew Bible. And we're going to read just the first 16 verses of what some have called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is where it was take place, but I would say a better title for it would be uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Upside-Down Kingdom. He's really trying to give us some insights into how the kingdom of heaven is so much different than the kingdom of this world. Beginning reading in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 1. And when Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And this is the key verses I want us to focus on this morning, verses 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, again, we would ask that your Spirit would bring insight and further understanding and clarity to this portion of your word and we pray that you might help us to see the true light of Christmas that Jesus Christ might be made more clear to us and the wonders of the gospel once again reiterated to us as we look into this portion of your word we pray in Jesus name amen again here is Jesus setting forth in this again a sermon I would call a sermon setting forth the upside-down kingdom of heaven. And Jesus gives the character of the kind of people in the kingdom of heaven. He describes people as being poor in spirit. And he talks about people who are those who mourn and who are meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness and mourn over uh, sin and the peacemakers. But when you think more and more about it, you begin to sort of scratch your head and you say, well, aren't these the people that the world mocks? Aren't these the kind of people that the world maligns 
and so disdains. They, they, if you notice the verses there when he talked in verses 10, 11, and 12, they're the ones who cast insults. These are people who are persecuted. People are going to say all kinds of evil against these kinds of folk. But Jesus, interestingly enough, not only sets forth the character of the kind of people who are, make up the kingdom of heaven, but he talks about the fact that these are the kinds of people who are going to be changed by the gospel. That's why they are in the kingdom. They have been changed and they're now in the process of continually being changed. They now have this different kind of character. And therefore, as people of a different character, they are going to exert an influence upon the world around them. Although Jesus' followers have been, are now, and will be dishonored by the world, Jesus assures them that their gospel witness will indeed have an impact on people around them. And that's where we pick up this idea of the light portion in verses 14 to 16. The gospel has declared that God in love has sent into this world a world that is darkened by sin, a world that is in brokenness. There's so much woe, there's so much awful in this world that brings us to tears and causes us to feel such a heaviness of heart at times. Into this world has come the sinless Savior who lived the perfect life, who revealed spiritual truth for us to understand the mind and the person of God, and now Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, he is now able to change sinners' lives, transforming them by the power of the gospel, and now his light is now going to shine through them or reflecting off of them into the world around them. To those who receive Christ, to those who believe upon him, they now have an influence, a gospel influence in this world. No longer do the people of the kingdom need to use people in such a way that they have to gain their own status. That's what the world does. The world what? Climbs over people in order to get to the top of the ladder. Why? So that they can get what they really long for and that is what? They want to be somebody. They want to be somebody important, somebody who has a title in front of their name, somebody who has a certain measure of status. It's people of the world who will try to gain their worth by means of the riches of this world. But that's not the people of the kingdom. They're totally, they're, they're marching to a different drumbeat. Interestingly enough, it is Jesus' band of disciples who were so transformed by the gospel, he took these lowly people, some of whom were not very well educated, and we read in Acts 16, that God used people like them to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And what I'm talking about this morning is indeed influential gospel impact. It is the light of Christ that has come and changed people's lives and hearts, and now that light is shining through them into other people's lives. Let's look at three insights into making influential gospel impact. And I have three of those insights here. In your outline, if you keep notes, that's fine. The first is the nature of that kind of influential gospel impact. Different threats that threaten that kind of impact. And lastly, what's the right motivation for such an impact? Let's look at some of the, the nature of making influential gospel impact. I think there are several underlying assumptions in this text of Scripture. 
Number one, it's assumed, and Jesus is pretty clear about this, that there are two categories of people in this world. Not three, not 17, not 500. There are two essential fundamental categories of people. There are members of the kingdom of darkness and there are members of the kingdom of light. And light is not darkness and darkness is not light. There are two opposites. These are two opposites. And the church and the world are not the same. And so Jesus came to liberate people from the kingdom of darkness, to deliver us from the realm of this outward religion where people are trying to do things in order to gain what they feel like they are, are lacking so that they would therefore have some sort of leverage with God or leverage with other people. And Jesus came to, to set us free from all that and to say, I am here and I've come to bring about an inner transformation, something happening on the inside of you by the means of regeneration, not outward religion, but regeneration, changing your heart, bringing you alive in Christ, which results in what? New attitudes, new desires, new perspective, new way of looking at things, even new behaviors. Colossians 1 says this, God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So, when Jesus becomes our treasure, when he becomes the one that fills us with joy, when he sets his love upon us in ways that truly are transformative, and ultimately satisfying. How can we not have an impact on the darkened thinking and viewpoints of people around us who are still loyal to the kingdom of self and me, me, me? That's sort of a pretty obvious assumption on my part is that there is two different groups uh, that are very clearly taught in this text. But there's another assumption. Secondly, there are those who live in the kingdom of darkness and in living in the kingdom of darkness, that is, in the world, they become spiritually disoriented. And that's what darkness will do. If you continually live in spiritual darkness in our world, I think you could boil it down to naturalism, that is, explaining away uh, the world uh, with God taken out of the equation. Everything is the way it is because of just natural forces operating in a random world. Secularism, removing God from any part of, of society. And if this continues to go for a period of time, as we've seen happen in the West here for many years now, worthless things over time can become valued things. That this kind of darkness that disorients people, you begin to find that the things which lead to enslavement are really the things that are promoted in that society as being those things that are liberating and self-authenticating. I think that this whole playboy philosophy, the idea of the sexual revolution that was promoted in the 60s, what a nightmare we've seen as it's being played out further and further as people keep pushing the boundaries of this freedom to do whatever you want in the sexual realm, apart from any kind of restraints or any kind of 
biblical values. Things which offend God in a darkened society where God has been pushed to the edges, those things are celebrated, those things are glorified. And I would think it's fair to say today, and again, I say this with compassion in my heart, that secular people have lost their moral senses. They've lost their moral bearings. What is evil is considered good, and what is good is considered evil. It reminds me of the, the words of Isaiah the prophet in the fifth chapter of the book he wrote, in which he warned the people of his day of this kind of promoting moral confusion. Listen to what he says. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. See, I think that the moral confusion and spiritual ignorance should never, ever be celebrated as they are in our world today. Spiritual darkness leads to despair. It leads to disaster. It leads to destruction. And ultimately, spiritual darkness leads to damnation. And that's sort of assumed in this text, what Jesus is talking about, light shining in a world that's dark. Thirdly, real quickly under this assumption of point number one, the nature of this kind of impact, Jesus is also reiterating that light has a powerful effect on darkness. It drowns out darkness. Light overcomes darkness. And we talked about that last week a little bit. And the darkest place is dramatically changed by the smallest of lights. And people in the first century knew that. People who lived in the first century did not have the convenience of electricity and light bulbs, and they did not have the convenience of, of uh, any kind of instant light um, that was, in a sense, portable other than something that was on fire. And so when it got dark, and when the sun went down, they didn't have any kind of light pollution that was adding sort of light up into the atmosphere. It was brilliant light in the skies with all the different stars you could see. And it was pitch black. So that in, in the interior of your living space, believe me, it was dark in, the, in that space. And that's why Jesus, I think, used two illustrations about the impact of light. So he talks about a city set on a hill. Uh, and when I was in Israel, they give you the proverbial tour on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And so as we're making our way from the western side to the sort of eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the tour guide says, okay, now turn around, look behind you. And he pointed out, now this is uh, this elevated um, ruins, I guess you'd say, on the coast of that particular lake. He says it's similar to the, the, the town called Hippos, Hippos, which was a city set on a hill, eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the point he's trying to say is that if you have a city that's elevated near water and you have torches all the way around that city at night, that city is going to be seen for miles and miles and miles around, especially in such a darkened area. And they knew that to be true. They're very much aware that a city set up on a hill with all kinds of torches at night can be seen from a long distance away. 
And so he also gives another illustration showing the power of light. And I brought with me a, um, a sample of one of these oil lamps, uh, which was made by a fella from Maine years ago who was a potter and did some demonstrations. And so he, he tried to model, and this is fairly close to what some of the first century uh, lamps were like in their homes. It's a very shallow little uh, pot, pot, and they, they take a little bowl, has a, a, a lip on it, and then they've pinched the lip, and they have a wick that sticks out of, the, of that particular part of it. And so you fill it with oil, and it burns. And so obviously he's saying you, if you hold this up at the central part of the room, as opposed to putting a peck, peck, a peck bushel basket over top of it, it's going to bring light into that space. The point Jesus is trying to say is that, is that what we do as believers... And who we are as followers of Jesus Christ visibly demonstrates and invariably demonstrates the truth of who Christ is. That, that living the way we do and being who we are invariably gives some indication of our understanding of Christ and of our relationship with Christ. A city built on a hilltop stands out prominently at night so the people of God have a noticeable impact on unbelievers around them in their sphere of influence. It's inevitable. A committed believer who's in living, who is living in accordance with the truth of God's word, whose mind has been transformed, whose values and goals and ethics have been conformed and, and, and changed and modified due to biblical truth, will undoubtedly impact the people around them. It's going to happen. They may not like it. They may not appreciate our point of view. They may not appreciate our lifestyle. But it's going to make an impact. It's going to be seen. It's going to be noticed. Now that brings me to my second point, And that is the threat. There are a number of threats to making influential gospel impact. And the first of these is when the truth is withheld. Withholding the truth. Danger number one. Jesus warns his followers against those, this threat um, in verse 15. He says, why keep a burning lamp under this peck measure, which is a, a basket that measures how much a peck is. It's like a bushel basket. He says it's illogical. There's no reason why anyone is going to sort of take a lamp that's designed to bring light and do something to completely obscure it so that it has no effect at all. And so he's saying that the church... Similarly, if God's people cover over the light of God's truth and we're withholding its natural effect, that is to bring, bring truth to people to understand what is the mind of God, and when the church distorts what the message of the scriptures involve in terms of the gospel and brings a, a gospel of health and wealth, that God wants you healthy and God wants you wealthy, then what are we doing? Then we're covering over the light of the truth of the true gospel. When the church addresses only certain topics like success and avoids topics that are perhaps not as popular, holiness or sin or eternal damnation or the cost of discipleship or self-denial, in a sense the church has taken its lamp and put it under a peck bushel. When truth is watered down, when the Bible is interpreted in a careless way, when verses are quoted out of context in order to support a man-centered doctrine, the church is hiding its influence 
of truth. And so I would say Jesus' encouragement is to us is to say, let the truth be heard. Let the truth be taught. And therefore, that's why we, as best we can, continue to preach and teach with our finger on the text, letting the text of Scripture guide us in our looking at the, at the uh, Word of God. Another danger I would like to bring to our attention this morning is called warping the truth, twisting, if you will, or dis distorting or warping the truth. What do we mean by this? Well, the gospel imparts to sinners this amazing new nature. The gospel is so radical, and it says we have not only a new status before God, but we have a new nature that operates within us. We are dead to sin. No longer has mastery over us. At one time, everyone was in darkness. At one time, all of us had unregenerate hearts. All of us had a life in which we were excluded from the life of God due to the hardness of our hearts. But the truth of the gospel is that when believers who have been changed by the gospel continue to live their life as if they're not a believer, I would suggest to you that that is warping and distorting the truth that is meant to now be of a gospel influence is now is sort of ruining that influence. Now I have a sort of a silly modern parable I'd like to tell you. At the intersection, on a very busy road, the light turned yellow. And so the fella, Jack, who's driving his car, he's in front and he, he does the right thing. He stops his car before he gets to the crosswalk. And he could have, it's true, like many people, sped up and just gunned the engine and tried to get through that intersection before the red light. But he decided, no, I'm going to do the cautious thing and I'm slowing down and he stopped. Well, the tailgating woman behind him was furious. You could tell she was ticked off and so she honks her horn, she's screaming in her car in frustration. She realizes now she's missed her chance to make it through that intersection. She's dropped her cell phone and her some of her makeup, who knows what all she's doing in the car. And so still in this mid rant at that intersection behind the fellow in front of her, a little tap on the window comes. It happens to be a police officer. <laughs> tapping on her window. She puts her window down. The officer orders her to exit her car with her hands up. So he takes her to the police station where she's searched, fingerprinted, photographed, all that thing. She's placed in a holding cell. And after a couple of hours, this is just a modern parable, by the way. After a couple of hours, a police officer approaches the cell. He opens the door. He escorts this woman back to the booking desk where, where this arresting officer is now waiting with her personal effects. He's returning to her all of her belongings. And he says to her, ma'am, I'm very sorry. This was a mistake on my part. He says, you see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing the horn, while you were flipping off this guy in front of you, and you were cussing a blue streak at him. And he says, I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker on your bumper, I noticed that there's a license plate cover that says choose life on the back of your car. I also noticed that you had follow me to Sunday school sticker also on your bumper. In, and in, in addition to a nice uh, silver plated Christian fish emblem, ichthus we call it, 
also on the back of your trunk. And she said, so naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> I think you get the point. Ephesians 5, very interesting passage where Paul expands on this. You might want to look at this in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, page 1393. Paul's concerned about understanding the implications of who are you in Christ? What is your identity and who are you in terms of what's, how God has changed your, your nature and, and, the real, and, and your uh, being alive in Christ? He says, do not, verse 7, do not be partakers with people who are pursuing what? Immorality, impurity, and greed from the previous verses. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says, walk or live as children of light. What does that look like? Well, the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And may I suggest to you that really applies a lot to the social media world. So many things that are said and spoken and talked about and posted. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. So I just, again, want to reiterate it's an obvious point here in terms of how our influence for the gospel becomes twisted and distorted. Because if we participate in darkness, then we are distorting the gospel. And some churches, unfortunately, take a slack approach to their membership in that they never shine the light of truth on the darkness of their members who are living in continual, unrepentant sin. But biblical, restorative church discipline helps to clarify who is a follower of Jesus from someone who merely just claims to be but li is living in sin and refuses to repent. And therefore, who is in a sense, living inconsistent with their profession, therefore it's a wonder, is their profession really true? And so church discipline lovingly and properly followed is a means by which we can help people walk in the light, if indeed they are in the light. Point number three, under danger, the third danger, sorry, under point number two, is to withdraw, withdrawing the truth. Another threat to effective illuminating impact of God's people is when they become over time detached from or disengaged from unbelievers. This is a subtle but a real problem. You see, letting our light shine and doing so on a mountaintop, it's possible that Jesus in standing there by the Sea of Galilee may have looked southward when he was making those statements. Now, if you know where the Sea of Galilee is here, imagine with me now, we're looking at a map. So this is the Sea of Galilee, and running south is a river called the what? Very good, Jordan River, runs from north to south. And at the end of that river, it empties into a body of water, which is the lowest point on the earth, in terms of its elevation of sea level. It's, and there you find a body of water called the Dead Sea, Dead sea. very good. And near the Dead Sea, and surrounding the Dead Sea is mostly desert, it's hot, it's just a wasteland. There in that particular area, on the western side, is Qumran. 
which at the time of Jesus was uh, populated by the people who wrote eventually the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found uh, back in the 1940s uh, in Qumran, and they are the Essenes. They were people who what? They were monastic. They were people who said, we're not having anything to do with people anymore who are outside in the world. We're going to have our own little world here. We're going to copy our own scriptures. We're going to have our own sort of pure life together. And perhaps wondering if Jesus was pointing down there saying, okay, don't be hiding your light under the bushel and withdraw from society, withdraw from your influence. He's probably encouraging them to say, let's be careful not to inadvertently or deliberately <clears throat> withdraw from unbelievers and ignore them. I read not too long ago the sad statistic that the average believer who has known Jesus Christ for over five years, that would include a, lot, a, lot, a large number of us, probably does not have one unbelieving friend. It is a challenge, I must say, for me to continue on a uh, relationship and a friendship with an unbeliever. I'm something I'm still working on. Could it be that a good number of Christians were so busy going to Bible studies and concerts and committee meetings that we don't know the names of the people who live on our street, our next door neighbor or the person three doors down? It's interesting that Jesus did not say that we are to be the light of the church. We're to be the light of the world. I had an interesting experience here recently in my own neighbor, uh, trying to get to know a neighbor. It wasn't something I intended to do. Interesting how God works. We have uh, in our front yard, there is a wall of, um, well, for better or for worse, bamboo. It came from the other neighbor uh, and through their fence. And so it's, anyway, so there it is, all this wall of bamboo. And, uh, and from, there, from that house, the one on the other side, which we can't even get to, can't see these people. Uh, they even live in a cul-de-sac. Uh, they recently moved in, had a neighbor change. And so I could tell he had some kids, and man, did I learn quickly, these kids like soccer. Because I began to find in our yard soccer balls. And I could hear them playing over there, but I couldn't easily see them because of a fence, there's all this bamboo, it's stickers in there, whatever. So I was uh, doing our leaves the other day, and I began to sort of complain to myself, thinking, what is with these kids, all these balls continually in our yard? And uh, I would throw a couple back here and there, and then I realized as I was doing our leaves, blowing the leaves into the woods, there's like 10 soccer balls in the woods with the bamboo. And then I realized, here's an opportunity to take those balls back to meet these neighbors and introduce yourself. And, in, and I did yesterday. And uh, the guy received the bag. I had a big garbage bag of soccer balls. And said, hey, look what I found. And, uh, and so I introduced myself and invited him to the Christmas Eve service and try to use it as an opportunity for redemptively saying, maybe it's good to have soccer balls in my yard. It, it gets me more communicating and involved with my neighbors around me. Isn't it interesting how sometimes people who can become annoying and perhaps who might be inconvenient in your life might be the people that God wants you to be start praying for and think of ways that you can involve yourself in showing him the light of Christ into their dark world. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 real quickly here, page 1397. I'm not going to dwell on this long, but I think this is just a helpful reminder. Philippians 2, 
the same passage that talks about Jesus having the mind of Christ, being more concerned about other people, how he humbled himself, all those wonderful truths. And then he brings it to this point where he says, be blameless, verse 15, be blameless and innocent children of God. He also said, don't complain, murmur and grumble. Blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a what? A crooked and perverse generation. Isn't that an accurate description of our world today? Crooked and perverse generation. Doesn't just apply to Albany. It applies to our communities. People live on your street. The house that I live on. We all, on some level, we all have crooked and perverse uh, issues in our hearts apart from God's grace. Among whom you appear as lights or stars in the world holding forth the word of life. So the darker it gets in our culture, the more we have what? Opportunities to shine the light, to bring people the word of life. So are you letting your light shine before others? Do they see the good, and by the word good here, I'm going back to Jesus' comments now in Matthew 5, the good works. Good works literally means winsome or attractive. There's something that's commendable about them that just, it's something good and wholesome about it. Is your life characterized by this kind of winsomeness? Or are you a person who's become over time rather cynical? And you're judgmental and you're hypocritical and self-centered and you just don't have any patience for unbelievers anymore. You just grumble about them all the time. You've lost your sense of compassion for them to see them as Christ sees them. Let your light shine. Don't withdraw. See them as an opportunity to shine your light. Okay, point number three. I want to think a little bit about the motivation for making influential gospel impact. And here I think Jesus is very wise in he, how he ends this particular challenge for his people. He talks about a word of caution. Of course, if we're not careful, if we are people who are leading a life where there are some good works being evidenced in our life, we might slip into this attitude of a being holier than thou. While we're endeavoring to bring light into the darkened world through our good works, our hearts may become what? Elevated with a sense of, we think too much of ourselves. We think we're too good. And the goal, of course, revealing our good works is not to bring attention to ourselves. It's not to say, I've got to keep doing this in order to be right with God. That's not the motivation of all. That's, that's what? That's trying to earn leverage with God. That's not the gospel. It doesn't motivate us to it. But our goal is to live in such a way that we are living out of a sense of gratitude for what Christ has already done for us. And he's made us into people who are now enjoying this new status, enjoying the fact that we are fully accepted and fully embraced and fully loved. And therefore, we live in such a way that we want Christ to be the one that people are impressed with. And we pray that they might realize how wonderful God is. So what does Peter say? Peter says in the midst of a world that was persecuting all these Christians and is treating them poorly, even though they're doing all the things that they should be doing legally and fairly and <clears throat> uprightly he says keep your behavior excellent among the gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify god in the day of visitation what's he saying he's saying as you live your life of moral excellence and doing the right thing at work in, in your in your home or in the neighborhood that you will find yourself what leading these people to ultimately discover the grace of Christ 
in the gospel. And someday, on that final day, they'll be rejoicing in the same God of grace that you are. So much more I could say here. Let me just back, back off and just say, first of all, do any of us do this really well? <laughs> is our light really well shining? Obviously, it's not. If we think it is, we've got another thing to learn. But in light of what Christ is saying, that he's the light of the world, we have to go back and remind us, what is the light? The light is the gospel that says there's hope for people who become ineffective light bearers. That there's forgiveness for us. That there is a sense in which when our motives do get off track, we could come back and the gospel humbles us and reminds us what Christ has done for us and helps us see people that we used to be like those people at one time. We begin to be reminded that we need grace to keep praying, say, Lord, may the other people join in this great throng of people someday who have worshipers, who will praise you, who will join with me and others, because you're the God who calls out of darkness people whose lives are lived in such brokenness and disorientation and distortion and you've brought us into marvelous light, into fellowship with you, into what it means to truly be alive and to be fulfilled and satisfied in Christ. May the gospel be shining in our lives, pointing others to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for those who may be among us today who may honestly speaking, still be in darkness, who may be concluding in their minds that their sins are so serious that they'll never ever, if they were truly acknowledged or known, that there would never be forgiveness for them. Lord, we realize that's stumbling in darkness. That is still the deceptive lies of the evil one. We pray that you would help anyone who's still in darkness here, Lord, who may have portrayed themselves as really being in the light when maybe they're not. We pray, Lord, that even today they would come to Christ. May the light of your grace break through their hardened heart. Impart new life to them, we pray. Give them faith. May they trust in Christ and repent of their sins and know and experience newness of life. We pray for those of us, Lord, who are children of God and who are enjoying the new status of being freed from our past. Lord, we pray that you would help us to realize what a privilege and opportunities we have to have influence in people around us. Lord, for some of us, we need to ask forgiveness. We've withdrawn. Our example is not very commendable to the gospel. We need to go back and maybe offer forgiveness, ask forgiveness from other people, Lord. Now, others of us may need to begin to take initiative on people that we've tried to avoid or had no interest in at all. Lord, just pray that we might follow your Spirit's lead. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to have strong sense of motivation to serve you so that others may be impressed with you and your grace, that they may join us someday at that great celebration in the place where there is no darkness, in heaven's glorious, restful land. We pray, Lord, that you might use us as your gospel influencers for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.